The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, there's a new Director General at the BBC. No, you haven't accidentally downloaded a show from last year. This is Tony Hall. We'll be asking what lies in store in his first week in charge, and if it's not casting our minds too far ahead, the next five years. Also this week, the paywalls go up at the Telegraph and the Sun. And did Eddie Mayer go too far in his grilling of Boris Johnson? This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And joining me this week is uh, Media Talk regulars, or perhaps I should say, ah, oh, to be uh, entirely grammatically correct, Mr. Paul Robinson and Ms. Maggie Brown. Thank you both. Pleasure. Regular do for me, though. That's good. I like to be regular. We start this week with Tony Hall, who becomes the BBC's latest Director General next week. In the style of Family Fortunes, chaps, I've come up with the uh, top ten most popular things in uh, Lord Hall's intray. So I thought we would start by seeing if you could guess what my top ten are. Paul, what do you think? What's, uh, what's going to confront him first? Uh, I think he's going to have to confront Charter Renewal, although not immediately, but it's going to be something that's in the uh, intray, I think, pretty much from day one. That's on my list, so okay. carry on. Yes, because some people think, well, Charter Renewal is not until, what, 2017, but in fact the work starts now. What's interesting is one of the other issues is going to be about building trust, I think, building trust inside the organisation and building trust with the public, and those two things are really linked to Charter Renewal. You know, the BBC is a great organisation. It makes great programmes despite everything else that goes on, you know, despite the management sometimes, actually, um, but... Public trust has been severely damaged, and I think that uh, you can't underestimate that critics of the BBC have been given pretty much open season to have a go at it, and we've got to change that. The BBC's got to change that because it cannot possibly go into charter renewal and expect to get a licensee settlement that is not going to be RPI minus or maybe even RPI um, if they don't build trust externally. Internally, he's got a whole new team. You know, he's got uh, new new people at the top in in all the key divisions. We don't yet know who's going to be. Doing doing news and TV, but we know that radio is a different person. Obviously, Helen, who's come from news, uh, new finance director. There's obviously Tim going to taking over it worldwide. So he's got to build that team, but he's got to build trust internally. And what was really clear, I think, from machinations of the last few months is that you know, BBC managers haven't really been talking to each other. You know, communication has been pretty lousy. Um, they haven't been necessarily taking account, taking responsibility for what they do. You know, it was fine leaving me and, and, and no sort of real sense of, of, of accountability. So I think building trust, building a real sense of a, a team inside the BBC and building trust outside are all critical to securing charter renewal. And that doesn't even tackle the issue of what the services are, which is obviously a big part of it. Maggie, I think Paul's covered off eight of my top ten uh, challenges already, so perhaps we can move on from uh, family fortunes. Well, I would just say one thing, though, that uh, it's all very well talking about uh, trust and, and negotiating a new charter and a basis for that, but we are also in the middle now of what looks like quite um, serious further day of strikes by BBC staff, and I would say one of the big immediate tasks he's got is to find a way of repairing what are really very fractured relations between the people who do things, run around, get hot, actually provide the service that uh, viewers and listeners want and this management here who I'm afraid have been exposed or part of them have been exposed in the uh, Pollard review last year as really being very um, detached really from the mission of the BBC this is a very serious issue and I don't think Tony Hall really fully appreciates how very furious people are and how difficult it's going to be to manage the next couple of years with these 20% cuts coming in and yet with services which are only partially being scaled back in the early hours of the morning etc etc so I think he's I think he is out of touch with current broadcasting he's going to be on a very fast learning curve after he's finished his holiday which I believe is on this week uh, do you know where he is? 
is, Maggie? Uh, I, I suspect it's somewhere hot and nice. But not the UK, then? Not the UK. Uh, but, 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 the, but the other thing, too, is, you know, he has got off to a pretty bad start by appointing people he knows already uh, as finance director and uh, also James Pennell as the person who is in, going to be in charge of strategy. Do you and mean they're bad appointments or the way they were appointed? I think the, the, the way they were appointed is wrong. If you're Without coming, any sort of advertising. Well, ones. put it this way. Direct appointments, I think they call them, don't they? It's yeah. wrong because if you're, say, appointing your own personal office and your team of people who you trust, that's one thing. Director generals always seem to bring in their own secretaries, for example, or chief of assistants. But to actually appoint a finance director to run what is a four or five billion pound organisation from Channel 4 and before that the Royal Opera House, where he was, and to reappoint, if you like, a former BBC strategist, James Pennell, seems to me entirely wrong. And I can only hope that going forward... The, the appointments he makes are a bit more open and don't fall back on what you might call Cambridge, Oxbridge, male, member of the, the BBC club. It would have been very interesting. If you actually want to modernise the BBC and improve the way you actually lobby, wouldn't it be interesting to have maybe somebody who's been very successful at Sky B, one of the most successful strategists and, and lobbying uh, companies, I think, in, in, who, who managed their lobbying anyway extremely well over the past 10 years? OK, well, Paul, I think um, one of the things he's going to say uh, next week is expected to be that he wants to move on, he wants to look ahead, he wants to sort of learn the lessons of Savile and, and put it all behind the BBC. But it feels like well, there are these, these bullying uh, reviews into bullying are still ongoing. The strikes that Maggie mentioned, they also relate to, to, to bullying and the treatment of staff. Uh, so how easy do you think is it going to be for him to move on and how much is it going to be dogged by some of the issues? That, that It's not going to be a clean break, is it? It's not a clean break. I mean, clearly he's been in the building a lot over the last few weeks. It's not as though he's starting after Easter and hasn't walked in the door at all. He's been around a lot. And there's obviously been an effort to try and clear away some of the issues before he walks in the door. You know, the sale of Lonely Planet, for example, is, is one example. You know, a, a totally wrong decision, not his to acquire it, but right to get rid of it, albeit at a huge loss. But I think back to what Maggie was saying and the point about bullying, I think it's very serious because if there's genuinely bullying behaviour in the, in the BBC and managers are genuinely bullying, that's a cultural change. That's a behavioural change that you need to affect. And that's going to take a while. You know, if the, if the NUJ are right and have got a really big dossier of evidence from members um, of BBC staff who have been bullying uh, on the back of pushing through savings, that's a very serious managerial issue, which is going to take him weeks and weeks and weeks to solve. Uh, on the issue of the staffing, I think I sort of agree with Maggie, but sort of half disagree. I think clearly what Tony Hall has to do is bring in a mix of ex- existing BBC people and ex-outsiders. Um, and I think he's trying to do that. Maybe the way he's done it is not right. I mean, the other person you didn't mention was Helen Bowden, of course, was moved into radio from BBC News, and there was no attempt to uh, offer that externally, um, unlike the, the news and television. So radio, was tr- radio feels it's been treated you know, not fairly because Helen's been just put into that job. So I think there are some issues, and building that into a team, a management team that really worked together and talked together, because it's quite clear that George Entwistle, you know, aside from his own failings, was let down by a complete lack of support and communications by people around him. He's got to get that BBC team really working together. And then he's got to, of course, uh, think about succession. There are uh, Already, Maggie? Indeed, because you know, he is somebody who is not expected to serve more than uh, one term at most. And it is very important. And that was one of the problems, really, with the dominant position that Mark Thompson had, such a big personality. People were not developed to follow in his footsteps. The other fact is that 
the director of news is, is really more than just the director of news because we have all these vacancies at the key commanding heights. It's Newsnight and it's the Today programme, the editors who really matter. I was watching last night and I was actually rather appalled by Jeremy Paxman. Uh, he was sort of using um, sun language to describe Abu Hamza's staying in the country as, according to him, the bearded bigot. And I don't know whether he's feeling the pressure of any mayor breathing down his neck, but there does need to be some sort of agreement about what Newsnight is going to be. And actually, speaking for myself, I do not expect it to sound like the sun. Well, talking of Eddie Mayer, we can't leave the BBC without mentioning his uh, interview with Boris Johnson on the uh, Andrew Marr show on Sunday. Paul, thumbs up or did he go too far? I think he went too far. I don't know what Eddie Mayer was trying to prove. I mean, Eddie Mayer is a, a fantastic journalist, and I've followed him from Radio 5 Live and obviously hear him regularly on PM on Radio 4. And he has a sort of a quiet authority about him that I think can be possibly disarming. But uh, I thought he got a bit personal, and I, I don't think it does Eddie Mayer any, any good. Boris clearly was flustered. It wasn't his finest hour. You know, clearly he couldn't answer things he should have been able to answer and was not, uh, poss- was not prepared. But I think Eddie Mayer has... I don't think he's necessarily done himself any good. I, I felt it a bit uncomfortable watching to be honest what do you think Maggie because I thought he did a better job than Paxman who you mentioned did at the Tory conference I think with Johnson last year when it became all about Paxman's pay packet but uh, did you think that last line about nasty piece of work sort of crossed the uh, crossed the line I did rather except that um, it, it is a it is a fact that um, there was then a very good um, documentary about um, Boris um, perhaps by Michael Michael, by Cockrell. Michael Cockrell yes on the BBC which um, in many ways did a more effective job. I think that the point is, though, that people have got used to Andrew Marr being a much more cosy and Sunday morning-ish sort of interviewer, and so that's also um, how Boris stepped into the trap, if you like, but then extricated himself rather marvellously, I thought. Well, by saying how good you thought it was and should have won a Pulitzer, yes. Yeah, yeah. But Andrew Mark, well, he asked those questions about Gordon Brown, didn't he? So it's not, you know, it's not um, not without president. No, it's not without president. But Andrew Mark somehow wraps it up in a slightly warm, smiley, sort of cuddly. You know, you sort of feel like you're being you're being grilled, but you don't realise it. Eddie Mayer was literally in his face, wasn't it? It really was, yeah. Well, let's move. Let's leave the small screen behind and talk about print, or specifically online, because uh, the biggest selling daily newspaper in the UK, The Sun, is about to start charging for its online content. And uh, so is the Daily Telegraph. Uh, well, you're better get about 20 online articles uh, for free on the telegraph then you'll have to start paying um either uh 199 a month i think or 20 pounds a year maggie what do you make of this do you think this is a, a sort of watershed moment for i mean the ft's been behind a paywall of course the times has but um you know this is this sort of changing the field a bit is this you know more, more of this to come well uh, what the anglo-saxon world really is adopting on newspapers is the metered approach which is actually not a complete pay- paywall it is actually semi-open journalism you can sample a certain number of articles it varies according to the paper uh, but if at a certain point you want more you you begin to pay up i think quite modest amounts so i don't find it at all an uncomfortable mood a move the financial times here actually made it work uh, in 2007 then they were more concerned really with showing who their audience or their readers are this is the other aspect of this um, if you are purely open then you, you can claim, as, as The Guardian, for example, does, that we have millions and millions of aspiring, future-looking uh, readers all around the globe, but you can't really go any further with them. And so there's two aspects. One is to show that actually to advertisers who it is that you're attracting and what segment you've got. And secondly, yes, paying for journalism by getting these quite small but accruing amounts and also creating people who 
then begin to appreciate the fact that journalism does not come free, at least quality journalism does not come free, I personally welcome it. And as I say, I do not think it is such a thing as a pure paywall. I think we should get away from that. Okay, Paul, what do you make of it? Maggie mentioned how the, the FT's done it rather successfully since 2007, but they've got affluent readership and uh, and a specific sort of content which makes it easier for them. Uh, the Times does it now, of course. Uh, uh, how do you think The Sun and The Telegraph are going to fare? Rather different readerships, of course. Well, diff- different readerships and also... All human life is there between all, them. All human life is there, definitely. Uh, the Sun, of course, obviously still the largest circulating newspaper, so of course many more people, uh, if they're online uh, getting The Sun free, will be aware they're getting it free and won't pay. So the revenue risk is obviously greater. I mean, 50 million a day, basically, is the revenue they take off the off the cover price which you know clearly you're not going to let that go easily um, I think what's interesting about this is that if in, in the old world we'd buy a, a magazine or we'd buy an album we'd buy a bundle of, of content and we'd buy him an album yes you know Good old remember days. those yep. just yep. about and you'd, you'd, be, you'd buy a bundle of content and there'd be stuff in there you really wanted and there'd be stuff in there you might like and stuff you never actually touched what iTunes did is it sort of disaggregated all of that you can now buy an individual song you can now buy an individual article which would be like buying an individual columnist but that doesn't work as a model in, in, in the newspaper world. So I think this is smart because, as Maggie says, you can get a certain amount of access, then you've got to go through a paywall and start paying. The reality is you cannot produce a quality paper if um, it's entirely free online. And it's about an attitude. You know, We've got to the point where we believe if it's on the internet, it should be free. And reality is quality stuff can't be. Well, this is a theme we'll no doubt return to again and again this year, almost as much as we talked about Leveson last year, or, or maybe, or maybe even more. Uh, also, this week we've gone from the small screen to print. Now let's go to radio. Uh, yes, uh, we tried to cover all media platforms here, and uh, Radio Two. Paul, I had you down as a bit of a Pink Floyd fan. Um, Tom Stoppard has uh, written a play, an hour-long play, uh, marking the 40th anniversary of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, which is going to be a combination of. Um, it's some kind of sort of trippy, uh, fantastical story, and of course, music from the uh, from the album, as we were talking about itself. What do you make of it? I'm, I'm rather excited about this. I think this is fantastic. I mean, first of all, I'm a huge Pink Floyd fan. I mean, not March 1973 when the album came out, and I bought it and listened to it many, many times, and I know it too well really uh, you know it's an oral landscape it was sort of a you know music I sort of grew up to and, and I absolutely adore it and I adored the albums that came, came afterwards and, and, and Pink Floyd are you know huge fans but what a clever way to celebrate the anniversary I think for Radio 2 given it's got this huge audience now 15 million listeners you know when it does things it's got to think of doing them in a public service distinctive way you know really showing creativity and ambition in what it does and this is a great way of doing it a, a, a play by Tom Stoppard um, commissioned uh, for this purpose illustrated by Pink Floyd music I just hope what they do is they schedule it in the peak time I mean Radio 2 does a lot of really good documentaries and really good specialist shows the trouble is a lot of them are after 7 o'clock in the evening I'd love to see this go out in a peak time slot maybe with an off-peak repeat and really get behind it but it's a brilliant initiative and I am very very excited I bet, it, I bet it will be promoted on the Chris Evans breakfast show. I mean, I'm sure that there'll be masses of takeouts since they can do all sorts of things yeah. with the content. Well, I hope, I hope he play. I mean, don't, don't just play Money, Chris, you know, because Money is the one commercial track on the album. Yeah, it's my least favourite. It's, yeah. it's one that sort of stands out. But it's play Breathe or The Great Gig in the Sky, you know. Or Chris what? Evans doesn't just fall into the, the easy trap anymore. I mean, look yeah. at the way he's doing the children's 500-word stories. I mean, you know, third or fourth year, third year. I mean, he's, he's becoming a very mellow... And and 
inclusive presenter. And he clearly loves the network he's on because, I mean, he's always talking about documentaries and other programmes and plugging them. But I agree with you. I mean, I think that very often you find yourself, if well, I sometimes find myself on Sunday evenings in a car or something going around the country. And it's true, Radio Radio 2 does hide away a lot of its really, really good gems. I'm going to test Paul's fandom, Pink Floyd fandom, by asking him who engineered Dark Side of the Moon. Can you tell me that, Paul? Um, I actually do know this. Um, I'm going to sound like a, like Nicky Horn or someone, aren't I? Um, it was actually Alan Parsons. Alan Parsons. Alan Parsons project, yeah. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Good knowledge, good knowledge, Paul. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, separate but related, uh, it says here, Art Angel takes over Radio 4. Maggie, is this a phenomenon you're aware of? Oh, yes, I've been... You mean the, the three minute things at nine o'clock that's right yes they've been slightly driving me mad um <laughs> oh. I, di- I did listen i have listened to john tusa reading a children's um uh, kind of story what's it all about maggie tell us for, for people who haven't heard uh, well i think it's it's an attempt isn't it to um show that radio four does the arts and breaks it up and um is it prepared to be experimental uh just for three minutes a bit like on this sort of channel four at, uh, at five to um eight um i find it pretty irritating actually Paul, are you are you more are you more uh, are you embracing this more than Maggie? I, I think I probably am. I mean, I must admit, the first day it sort of caught me unawares because I wasn't aware it was happening. I did think, oh, my radio's broken. This is something weird's happening. But actually, I have I have stayed listening after today's program to hear this after the nine o'clock news, and it, it is weird. It, it is terribly risky. I mean, at a peak time to put on these very strange sort of. Um, soundscapes of, of weird disconnected stuff but I think it's brilliant again brilliant that Radio 4 is doing it it's what we want from a network I was uh, in um, Berlin the week before and last we don't for... necessarily do we I mean I was listening no, this we morning do. and it was of a kind of do. parody of somebody doing a live report oh my goodness you know there are crystals in the sky I'm doing this I'm doing that and I've gone into a shop and I actually just wanted to get on to Melvin Bragg yeah but it, this, it was but it was trying something different I mean it was you know they're talking about it being oral art I mean I think it oral is art. I think I mean, it it's is a load of rubbish. no it is Listen, I, I was in Berlin last week. Let me finish this little story. I was in Berlin last week for the Radio Days conference, the European conference, and there was one session that had the entire conference talking called Radio Lab by um, a guy called Robert Kralwich, who's an American journalist. Um, he's worked for all sorts of um, public service networks, and he does this um, radio show that is actually syndicated. And what he does is he takes strange sounds. So, for example, he'd take John Plunkett, and if you say John Plunkett, John Plunkett, John Plunkett enough, it becomes music, believe it or not, John. And he demonstrates music to my ears. Music to your ears. And he demonstrated <laughs> in the hall and so how simple language suddenly became music and then then people started humming it and then playing on instruments and he does this sort of experimental stuff on this program and I thought it was just brilliant because it was just playing with sound and playing with audio and it's working 400 stations take this and he's now got 4.5 million downloads a week right it's time now for Maggie's favorite part of the show it's the media monkey quiz Oh no! a bit of breaking news here Maggie so no excuse if you don't get this one Uh, which uh, large uh, media company defended its use of the C word as light-hearted this week. I've no idea. It really is breaking news. It's Amazon, uh, which sparked outrage, and listeners who might be offended uh, tune away now. Uh, it defended the use of the word "cunt" in a podcast in a product image used uh, by Amazon on its website. But I don't um, really regard Amazon as a media company. Do you? Oh, I think they are. Yeah, no, you don't question the questioner. They are. I mean, no, look, look, love uh, film, right. love film. Yes, that's I agree. That's distribution. Oh, it appeared in a, uh, uh, it was appeared on Amazon.co.uk for a Christmas card. Uh, I should say. Uh, so there you go. Question number one. That was a, that was a barnstormer. Amazon are now, by the way, commissioning original content, so they are actually making programs. Off topic. Uh, question number two: A which Sorry. Australian dame is to star in a new Sky One comedy set in the First World War? Barry Humphreys. Barry Humphreys, famous for Dame Edna. He's going to appear in Chickens, which was a sitcom which was piloted by Channel 4, but they decided not to go with it. So Sky One picked it up and ran with it by the looks of it, all the way 
all the way to Australia. And uh, question number three, what does the Swedish word ogooglebar mean? I might not have pronounced that right. I have uh, no idea. It means you can't find it on Google. It's impossible to search. Very good, Paul. Very good. Yes, it says here, impossible to find via See, website. This is why I hate this, this quiz. I never well, win. I think it's always better to fail magnificently than just, you know, sort of come a close second. Well, I could have said that. Which you have this week. But I'm could you? Sure. Yes, oh, I'm I sorry. Was that too quick? No, no, I'm sorry. No, no, I apologise. No, no. Now I'm feeling bad, Maggie. That's all right. Uh, right. So uh, at the end of the round, it's the end of the quiz. And I think it's Paul 2, Maggie 0. <laughs> better, better luck next time, Maggie. <laughs> Unusual to get that level score. I mean, I'm just beginner's luck. Okay. Well, that's all for this part of the show. My uh, enormous thanks as ever to Mr. Paul Robinson and Ms. Maggie Brown. Guardian Audio Edition. Sean Ingle on the Tabata workout program. Harder, faster, fitter, quicker. Kira Cochran on the rise of the naked female warriors. And in our audiobook review, we look at some of the best new fiction around, from Kate Atkinson and Ruth Ozeki. To subscribe for free to the Guardian Audio Edition, go to audible.co.uk forward slash guardian, or find us on SoundCloud, iTunes and Audioboo. Guardian Audio Edition, a new way to get the whole picture. Well, let's move away from traditional media now and look at the latest digital developments. And joining me, oh, that sounds like a sounds like a it could all be a name for this section, couldn't it? Digital developments with Mr. Ollie Mann. Ollie, Hello. how are you? Yeah, very excited to be the debut guest in this new feature, John. Yeah, yeah well, you know, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Uh, what is, we, is this trial, basically, <laughs> if this doesn't work? It's like a sort of broadcast non-pilot. Um, <laughs> So what have you been playing on your non-specific tablet device? <laughs> well, I thought uh, I should talk about Sumly, John, because it's been much in the news this week. Uh, this is uh, It's topical and it's digital. This is a winner. Carry it, on. Yeah, I'm fulfilling the brief, I feel. Yes. This is the app by that 17-year-old that you've been reading about who sold uh, for, uh, I think, um, $30 million is the exciting figure rather than the figure in pounds because it's more easy, 30, uh, to Yahoo. And I've been on this guy's case, actually, since uh, about November because we'd uh, met him. Uh, in a green room. We were both on BBC Breakfast together. Ooh. Uh, and uh, he was on to talk about how he was a schoolboy, and yet he developed this app. And I have to say, I think the tone of all of that was incredibly patronising. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg was not much older when he came up with Facebook. But before we go, what is it? And did you hate him? Well, okay. <laughs> what it is, is a app which aggregates news... Uh, so it's, it's one of those things again. But but what was special about Sumly is it uses an algorithm to do that. Uh, so once he'd designed uh, this computer program that goes around making summaries of news stories, uh, you essentially don't need to keep monitoring it. It takes care of itself. It auto-generates summaries of news stories in, uh, I can't remember the exact length of words, but in, an, in a number of words that fit, crucially. And it makes an, sense. On an iPhone and Android screen. It sort of makes sense. You read sentences that probably wouldn't pass sub-editors, but then again, uh, you know, most sub-editors on newspapers have been unemployed anyway, made redundant, so uh, it, is, it is an <laughs> feel, unfortunate trend. It feel, yes. feels much like reading a newspaper anyway. Uh, and what was clever about this is it links through to the website of the newspaper that the story is from. So, you know, he could say all along, what we're not doing is stealing readers, you know, which Rupert Murdoch famously accused Google of doing. What we're doing is diverting readers to your website from our app click the story and you want to read the whole story, you get taken to the website of the newspaper, including all the advertising that they can sell against it. So we're not stealing revenue, we're generating readership. Uh, How much did that happen, do you think? Or how much was it just a kind of, you know, digital version of the week? 
I honestly think, in truth, that um, I mean, the, the drop-off in the amount of people that have been using it since it was launched uh, has been substantial. I mean, it went straight to number one uh, in the app chart when it came out uh, and, you know, has subsequently sort of disappeared from the top ten. So I think, realistically, I think it's the kind of thing people tried once as a novelty. And what I would say is that although, having said that the way it was presented to the mainstream media was a bit patronising about him being a schoolboy, although that's the case, there's no question that he wouldn't have sold it for $30 million to Yahoo Now!, unless that had been the case. It is a classic example, I think, of how you can leverage traditional broadcast and mainstream media to get a new media product out there and to get uh, some traction behind it. And, you know, we found that with our podcast and people find that, I think, all the time with the stuff they're developing. It's extraordinary how 200 words in a newspaper or an appearance on BBC Breakfast, weirdly, can leverage a completely digital product. Um, and uh, just lastly, why did they spend? Why is it worth thirty million dollars? And and what are they going to do with it? They're going to close it down, aren't they? Yes, they are, and they're incorporating essentially him into Yahoo. I mean, you so know, they're buying his brain rather than the app. Yeah, I mean, the talent behind Sumly is basically him and some mates. So yeah, you know, it's putting a very high price tag on their heads. Um, but it's the technology behind the app which they now have. Uh, rights to use in future Yahoo products. And I think kind of Yahoo needs its own Zuckerberg. Uh, you know, the people who founded Yahoo are now quite old. Uh, Yahoo is a dinosaur of the of Web 1.0. Uh, Marissa Mayer, since she became the uh, CEO of Yahoo, has been getting a lot of positive plaudits online from the kind of people who blog about this sort of stuff, talking about how, I mean, some criticism as well, because the way she's dealt with childcare issues and so on, but uh, a lot of uh, positive reaction for the way in which she's clearly trying to evolve Yahoo and make it relevant now. But I have to say, if you still go to the Yahoo homepage now, uh, you are just whisked straight back to uh, 2001. (laughs) Um, There is nothing Web 2 about that yet. But it's encouraging. I mean, for example, there's a lot of speculation she's about to buy Daily Motion as well, which is a French video sharing website, uh, not nearly uh, as popular as YouTube, but substantially more popular than Yahoo's uh, native video offering, which is piss poor and has been for many, many years. Um, so I think, again, an understanding that owning decent video content is rather important to any sort of web company moving forward. Okay, Mr. Man, that's uh, summary summed up. Uh, what, what's next? Well, I thought we should talk about Flipboard as well. Flipboard 2, uh, which is... Uh, the So updates. much better than Flipboard 1. It is. Are you not a Flipboard user? You said yes. that with some scepticism. No, I am. Just don't ask me about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I've got I've, a Flipboard. Have you? Do you, do you have an, an overhead projector as well? Yeah, I, like to <laughs> combine the my, two. <laughs> that was my dream. I never, never quite got there. Uh, Flipboard, of course, you, as you know, is the uh, very popular uh, news... Again, it's a kind of news aggregating app, but uh, as well as news from official channels, which is all that Sumly deals with, what Flipboard deals with is, is your Twitter feed as well, and can lay out a tweet in a way that makes it look like a news story in a newspaper or magazine. So it's quite an interesting idea. And it's Do I want this, I'm thinking? It's brilliant. If you've, do you have an iPad? Uh, yes. Sorry to mention branded products, but really, if you have an iPad, it is, and has been for years, this is not a new thing, the best way to look at Twitter on an iPad, because it just makes it look beautiful, makes it look like a newspaper or magazine, and is highly ironic, uh, you know, that as uh, the traditional print industry is falling down around us, uh, we decide to take online news stories and make them look like traditional newsprint. It's like a cruel Mickey tape. It, is, it kind of is. Um, but it's it's been a brilliant app for a long time. It's just released an update. What the update allows users to do, uh, essentially, no surprise here because every update of every app in the world is doing this, is make it look a bit more like Pinterest. Uh, so instead of having boards, which is what you have on Pinterest to share your stories, uh, you can now edit magazines. But it's essentially the same. The idea is instead of just creating this content for you, you can curate content and then share 
share it with other people. Hey, look at my Flipboard and share what you find interesting. Dirty boy. My concern with all of this is I can well imagine making a magazine for myself. I can't imagine downloading someone else's. I don't really care what someone else's passion projects are. Um, the chance that anyone else has the exact same mix of interests that I have, uh, which <laughs> stretches far and wide from uh, musicals to digital technology to uh, well, actually it's, it's quite quite a lot of uh, Hollywood musical stuff there, quite a lot of Disney as well. Um, but anyway, <laughs> the chance that someone else is interested in that, and say British comedy, which is another thing that I'm interested in, quite small. And I'd, I'd rather sort of find people who like things that I'm interested in, but I might not like everything they like, and combine their passions into my own. Uh, magazine, but anyway, it seems to be sort of search out superfan websites or you know superfan flipboards. Well, I just think personally, personally, I I didn't have a problem with the way Flipboard was working as it was. Uh, But anyway, hugely popular app, fifty million downloads now. They can't be wrong. I do think what's interesting is the way that, as I was saying before, you've taken digital media and made it look like traditional newsprint. Actually, I think the most successful of the websites for traditional newspapers now are the ones that look a bit like Flipboard, weirdly. Um, USA Today is a great example. They had a relaunch uh, a couple of months ago. And if you buy the paper now in the States, USA Today looks a bit like Pinterest as a paper. Uh, There are blocks of tiles of texts. And that's what they've done on their web app. and, And actually... You kind of want your apps to look like newspapers, but you do sort of want newspapers to look like apps as well. Uh, and it's because people are reading them on phones and tablets. So I think, you know, it is a step in the right direction in that way. Oh, and uh, Ollie, just finally, what's the, what's the last bit of fruit in your digital basket you're going to share with us today? <laughs> uh, well, whilst we're talking about app updates, uh, just sort of draw your attention, since uh, the people listening to this are podcast listeners, to the fact that uh, Apple have finally uh, made their podcast app not rubbish. Uh, if you update the podcast app now, it is usable and it does doesn't have infantile childish uh, representations of reel-to-reel tape recorders on it anymore. Oh, I quite like those. Did you quite like those? Yeah. They're not very functional, though. If you turn the phone uh, on its side, I found that you couldn't actually scan through the tape at all. It's better. Uh, it works. Uh, I do just worry if um, the gap hasn't actually been filled by other apps in the meantime, the likes of Stitcher uh, and Downcast. But I still think, you know, it's, it's good that Apple obviously have a decent podcast app. You still can't obviously delete a podcast from the main screen, though. You have to click edit and then find the one you want and then click remove. It's very tedious. Well, Ollie, I mean, you're talking to a man who, who still struggles to transfer uh, uh, songs from his, uh, from his Mac to his uh, iPhone uh, since he bought a new iPhone. So this is yeah, a tra- tragic case. Well, no, actually, I get that. Is it because, yeah, the new iPhone's actually essentially a faster computer than your old computer you're trying exactly, to Exactly, my yeah, five-year-old yeah. computer. Yeah. I know, and you don't update the operating system. First world yeah. problem, but a serious one. It is, it is indeed. I'll yeah. tell you the real... Ter- I'll, I'll teach you a word of the day, John. Go on. The word that describes the thing you're talking about, where they have these graphics, notepads that look like notepads, reel-to-reel tape recorders that look like old tape recorders. It's called skeomorphism. Is it? It's the design watchword at Apple, or was, during Steve Jobs' life. Uh, And there's been, apparently, this big controversy within uh, Infinite Loop, Apple headquarters, as to whether they should dump it. It looks like, finally, they might be dumping some of that. I think it's because, yeah, people use Apple products for business now, don't they? They're not just jokey little things for designers with cool glasses. So it's farewell... Skiomorphism. I think it is, yeah. Well, on that bombshell. <laughs> Ollie Mann, thank you very much. Pleasure. And I'm joined for the last part of the show by The Guardian's TV reviewer, Sam Wollaston. Sam, how are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Yeah. Making your pod debut must be hugely exciting, I imagine. Yeah, it's an honour. <laughs> well, thank you. First up this week, uh, Doctor Who's back. Yeah, after a bit of a break, Doctor Who's back uh, on Saturday. Uh, You're excited about this, Sam, I can tell. I, 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 quite, I like Doctor Who. You know, I, it's, it's, 
I'm, I'm not a sort of a, a nerdy sci-fi person, but I, I think I think especially when Stephen Moffat's doing as, as he does this, he's written this one. It's it's a broad enough for a, your average person, and this is a lovely one actually. It's it's called the Bells of St John, or maybe the Bells of St John if you're very posh. It's a good uh, opportunity for um, him and his new sidekick to kind of cement their relationship. Clara, Matt Smith's back, but. His companion isn't. Amy Pond went a while ago. The great Amy Pond. The great Amy Pond. And, and she's a hard act to follow, obviously. But Clara, played by uh, Jenna Louise Coleman, is, I think she's sort of going to fill her shoes quite nicely. She's a sort of different character. She's sort of posher. She's smarter. I think she's more of a kind of equal than Amy was, who she was a bit ditzy, whereas uh, I think Clara's kind of more... They have a, they have a sort of a nice sort of... Sparky chemistry, I think. The Are they getting younger and younger, or is it just me getting older and older? I think it's just you getting older yeah. and older, John. <laughs> so for me, this could be showing my age again, uh, Sam. I, I kind of all got a bit too complicated for me, too much effort, so I've stopped watching. But uh, what, what do you make of the Moffat era? Is it is it running out of steam, or is it is it still going strong? I, th- I think a few sort of diehard uh, Who heads, or uh, I think they're called Whovians, aren't they? Uh, sort of cross with some of the complications and things and cross with him. But I think he brings a sort of wit and a sort of normalness to Doctor Who that we didn't see before. And this one, actually, it's a very... It's, it's, this is one for, that a non-sci-fi person could really get into because it's it's not set two billion years ago on a different planet or in a different time zone and stuff like that. No so comedy it, monsters. There's no comedy monsters, which which I like, actually. I like it. I like that the threat is from the sort of internet and from Wi-Fi, and it's a more sort of... It feels more real, actually. It actually there's a, there's a slight feeling of um, Charlie Brooker's Black Mirror about it. It has a sort, of, a sort of dark threat about it. Yeah, it's a good one. And also this Saturday, The Voice is back, which was hugely popular for, its, uh, for about half a series last year, and then it went down the dumper. Yeah, the problem was after the first round, the spinning chair round, you got to the, the live stuff, and it just wasn't very exciting. It, wasn't, it lacked the drama. The first bit was great because it involved you know, attention, drama, and stage fright and everything. It's when the judges or the coaches couldn't see who was singing. Exactly, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Lots of jeopardy. Yeah, lots of jeopardy, lots of tension, lots of drama, lots of tears. And, and then it got boring. And they've changed it a bit. They've cut down the live stuff to about three episodes, I think. Whereas the the chair spinning at the beginning bit goes on for, for, for longer. And Which is weird, isn't it, that they do fewer live shows in an era when live TV is a whole big thing. Yeah. It feels counterintuitive. but um. it, it does a bit, but I think it was because people lost interest uh, last time. And they've tried, to make it, uh, they've tried to set it up a bit because I think once they've got their teams, they've chosen their teams, they're going to be able to nick people from his they can do sort of raids into other into each other's teams and steal people it just sounds a bit more a bit more i think they've uh, suffered from being knocked last time and they've, right. they've, they've yeah. rejigged it a bit and as uh, neil Ennis said now it's our turn uh, to paraphrase him anyway yes um <laughs> and uh, also there's a kate moss adaptation but not that kate moss uh kate moss with an e the novelist kate moss yeah it's called labyrinth it's uh channel four also on saturday it's sort of like the Da Vinci Code. It's got a bit of Game of Thrones. It's it's you know it's like medieval, uh, Middle Ages, rings, symbols, secrets, societies, all that kind of nonsense. And it is. It's utter nonsense. It's laboured, ponderous. It's the dialogue is really dreadful. Uh, some dodgy accents in there. It's a howler. Uh, but any big names? Is it, is it um, uh, John Hurt? I'm trying to think of a reason to watch it, Sam. You're not giving me any yet. Well, yeah, there is one reason <laughs> to watch it. The, the one reason to watch it is that Lady Sybil from Downton, you get to see her in the buff. But I mean, that's, that's steady on, Sam. This is media talk. <laughs> I know. Sorry to bring the tone down. Um, but, but apart from that, um, it, it's, it is steamy. It's, it has a feeling of sort of 70s German porn film about it. Not that I've ever seen a 70s German porn film, but it, it has that kind of uh, CD bad acting 
feel about it. And 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 John Hurt somehow is in it, and I, I, God knows why. Because I hope he's being paid a lot because it's not it's not going to be his proudest work at all. Well, if Channel Four want to put any of your quotes onto the uh, DVD box set, then uh, they're more than welcome. Oh, I, well, I yeah. hope they do. Yeah. All right, uh, Sam Williston. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's it for this week. No, it really is no encores. My thanks to all our guests in alphabetical order, who were Maggie Brown, Ollie Mann, Paul Robinson, and Sam Wollaston. Please leave your messages about this week's show on our Facebook wall or our blog. Or you can tweet me at the world's most popular Twitter account, at JohnPlunkett149. Media Talk is produced by Mr Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.